What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today. Everyone and welcome once again to So Very Wrong About Games, a board gaming podcast about board games. Don't worry, you'll catch up sooner or later. My name is Mark Bigney, and with me as always is my loyal co-host, Mike Walker. How are you doing, Walker? Fantastic, Mark. How are you doing? I'm very well. I have an important question for you, Walker. I, I would like you to address the hot rumors. Because this has been a terrible week, a very, very dark week, would you like to address the rumors that you are going to audition to replace Flavor Flav in Public Enemy? Yeah, boy! Derivative is not the route I think you want to go. It's a little too soon. The wounds are too open. I mean, how do you are you willing to advance whatever political opinion that Chuck D happens to be having at the given moment? One hundred percent. It's it's been a dark week. It has I been can't believe I, I knew that politics was divisive. I didn't know it was sufficiently divisive to break up Public Enemy. Well, I can't believe that they have to. God, how many more months of this that they have to go through? <laughs> I feel bad for them. There's that too. The other thing is, Mark, we always talk about bad Kickstarters and everything else. I just want to put in a chime for it. When good things happen, you know, we should talk about that as well. There's Starling Games. They uh, they put out uh, Shadow Rift. And uh, there was an email that went out that said, you know, everyone should have their their expansions, Boomtown. And uh, for, for the last few years, I've just stopped, not stopped looking at... Uh, announcements or anything like that i just know when they say three weeks i don't even expect the package until you know there's a knock on the door and then, it's a hel- it's and, then a healthy and then i've got my game so anyway i just sort of said well maybe i should just shoot out an email and apparently you know they didn't have my address quite right and literally the next day i got a shipping notice so you know that's that's good customer service get a call very next day i have a shipping notice so there you go and when you get the game you don't even have to go back to their headquarters and open it right in front of them in case you have a missing piece this is also true and let's just hope mark because we are going to say something or i am going to say something if there is not some documentation in the expansion talking about <sighs> what cards to start with when you play this game i'm telling you it better be in there or any documentation at all for new card types oh yes 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 this I, is honestly true. this is the reason why i've given up on shadow rift I, I just don't do Shadow Rift anymore because I'm sick to death of it. Anyway, this is a podcast about board games. In this podcast, we complain and grouse, and then we talk about games we played last week, the news, and why it doesn't matter. And finally, our feature game this week is going to be Clinic Deluxe Edition by Alban Villard. So, Walker, let us talk of the games we played this week. I just have a brief update about our Street Masters Aftershock campaign. We've been progressing steadily nearly every week we've been playing Street Masters. And I have to say that the same thing in the Aftershock campaign has happened that has happened in more or less every campaign game of my experience that is co-op. And that is we crossed the tipping point several sessions ago. And now we are just beating the living crap out of these AI opponents like they like they stole something. It has long ceased been even remotely challenging. Still fun. I love Street Masters. And it was never the hardest game in the world. But I have to say that the campaign has definitely brought it to new lows of difficulty. 
And so I seriously think that if we are going to continue on the campaign as a series of linked scenarios, we might just start with brand new characters that don't have any upgrades. So you're punching them like they insulted your mama. Yes, exactly. It's uh, the, the streets have been well and truly mastered. We have mastered those streets. They know who the master is. And while we are going to continue in all likelihood, I, I for one, definitely going to switch out characters. I'm going to try to pick a, a, a new character, preferably one that now does not have five upgrade cards and can do five damage on their turn before they even do any actions. So, yeah, still love Street Masters. And I, I have to say, just on the general topic of fulfillment, I keep getting these Kickstarter updates that keep talking about how many people still don't have any product. And my heart goes out to them. This has been a shambolic procedure from the beginning, the fulfillment of this project. You have my sincere sympathies. I understand some swaggers still don't have their Aftershock content. And I'm not talking about people who were missing something and have yet to be made whole. That problem is a separate problem. We're talking about people who have nothing. Did you, what happened with that thing where they had, you had the wrong postal code? Did it actually go there or did it actually show up? Or That was it, something else. Well, that was something else. <laughs> yes. Did that ever show up? Yes. Good. <laughs> that was not their fault, though. Completely different company, completely different project. I got my Street Master stuff in a relatively timely manner. It would seem, based on the overall timescale of the fulfillment of Street Master's Aftershock, I was in definitely the first third. So say, compared to others, absolutely, you did well. absolutely. And that's Street Masters. I got to play. We got to, just talked about it last week, so I'm sure that's why Mark brought it because he knows I wanted to play it. We got to play Stevenson's Rocket. It's a Reiner Knizia older railroad type game that I'm a slave to your whims, Walker. It is. It is. It is. As good as I remembered it, it is just a fantastic game where there are sort of two little mini games going on. And there's two, and there's different ways you can play these little, these mini games. There's like a stock market going on here. And you can either focus on making sure you're in the right cities or you can focus that you're in the right commodities because the commodities are going to pay out at the end of the game if you have the most in particular columns. And then there's the, the, what you could call the main board where the trains are zigzagging around and, and merging into each other. And there's, and there's multiple games in that as well. You can either try to, you know, skillfully put out your stations. So, you know, you're going to have many stations on the track. So that's going to score one way, or you can, I don't want to say bully the table, but you can manipulate. Oh, totally. Okay. I'll say bully. Stevenson's Rocket is a game for bullies. It is. It is a very nasty game. So you can bully the table and make people use up their shares because you can, if someone wants to move a train, you can say, ah, I've got some shares on the train. I don't really want to move it that way. And you can sort of make them pay shares to make them move it the way you they want to, even though you really didn't care that they're moving it that way. You just wanted them to you know, lower their shares because that's yet another way scoring happens is whoever has the it's most shares. so beautiful. Shares. I'm getting emotional. I, I'm it, getting a tear in my eye. It, That's, it really is just a, a really good game, and the and they have different maps out for it. So even just a base game that has two different sides of the map, so it changes it up, and then there's an expansion out that has two more maps. So if you have a chance to play Stevenson's Rocket, give it a go. It is a very interesting game, and there's not many like it that I've played. It's true. Even even by the state, it feels very much like a Knizia game, but at the same time, it feels very different from a lot of other Knizia games. Like a Knizia game, you desperately need more actions than you have, and you're constantly being pulled in many different directions, despite the fact that there's a very, very simple set of actions you can do. You need to dominate stations, you need to dominate shares, you need to dominate goods, and you need to dominate in-game scoring. All of these things are huge pressures. We went into tremendous detail when we reviewed it over a year ago, but you're mentioning that you wanted to play it. Look, one of the one of the benefits of having a large collection is you can pretty much stipulate what you want to play. But I'm very, very sensitive to anyone saying, hey, this game we played last month, last year, whatever, I want to play it again. So you mentioned you wanted to play Stevenson's Rocket again. More than happy to do so. And here's the great thing about it. 
we tried one of the new maps. And my experience with Stevenson's Rocket is extensive, but with the new maps, not so much. And the new maps seek to redress, as we said last week, some of the weird asymmetries in the base England map. We played in the USA map, and partially as a result of that, I was shocked a new player won. And it was because they took advantage of the good strategy, which is by far the weakest strategy in the England map. And as a result, I don't pay much attention to it. Neither and of us did. Neither of us did. You're, you're absolutely right. Uh, you mostly got, you were mostly the one bullied. I have to say that I initiated a series of predatory auctions against you. You took it in good humor. And <laughs> you you knew when to spend and when to stand back, but you nonetheless got blood dry of your influence to a large extent. Every game of Stevenson's Rocket I've had has been marvelous, but the benefit of switching up the new maps is it really serves to undercut sort of the preconceived settled notions that I, as an experienced player of Stevenson's Rocket, have. So probably the next time we play, we should play on the China map, because again, don't have a lot of experience with that. And yeah, I agree with you. Marvelous game. Stevenson's yeah, Rocket. I can, you can really compare it to Tigers and Freddy's, I think. Not in the actual gameplay itself, but in the fact that you only have two actions, and all of the actions are very simple. So it like coasts around the room very quickly. But the intricacies of what you can do with those two actions is amazing. And the ripple effects, several turns down the line. I love Knizia's other tiling games, games like Samurai and Through the Desert. But one of the things that Stevenson's Rocket and, and Tigers and Euphrates really have is one of those issues where, okay, I'm just putting down this single tile. What is this going to mean five turns from now when I realize that everything was lost when that tile was placed? Yeah, and not only that, it's sort of like, like chess or barony or Tigers and Euphrates where you're you're trying to control the table. You're like forcing your opponents to make certain moves. It's like you you threaten an area and they have no choice but to do something about it or, you know, or yield you points. Love it. Could not agree more. I played a game I've been meaning to try for some years now, Lorenzo Il Magnifico. We are fans of Italian designers here on Sorry Wrong About Games, primarily Paolo Mori, Simone Luciani, and Danielle Tascini. And they tend to work together with a lot of the same Italian designers keep showing up over and over. And Lorenzo Il Magnifico was designed by Flaminia Bersini, Virginia Gili, and Simone Luciani. No Tascini, no Paolo Mori. These were some of the same people involved in making games like Igizia or Grand Austria Hotel or Leonardo da Vinci. And very much like Leonardo da Vinci, the theme of Lorenzo Il Magnifico is bone standard. It is the Italian Renaissance. Go get points. They don't even bother to specify who the titular Lorenzo is. I mean, it's obvious from context, but, you know, it's the same old standard Medici and Borgia and whatever families are sponsoring works of art, blah, 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 blah. The, the theme is so dull, I'm glad they didn't even bother trying to explain it. And it's strange, reading the rulebook, it became clear that this was yet another worker placement tableau builder thing. And yet, the elements come together in a way that I have to describe as pleasing even though I wouldn't describe anything in the game as even remotely novel. It does have a bit of the flavor that I quite appreciated in Black Angel, even though Black Angel didn't come together in ways that I liked, in that you're expected to sort of kind of almost build an engine and pump it maybe once or twice, if you're lucky. Because it's a relatively tight time frame in terms of actions, and getting your engine to work is hard, because it doesn't trigger by itself. You build up these different tableaus, you're effectively allowed to get four different kinds of cards. And two of them are not particularly interesting over the course of the game in terms of engine building. One of them gives you a set of special powers, but mostly it's about in-game scoring, these two types of cards. But then you can build these two different kinds of engines, which are activated by dice. This is a slightly different spin on dice worker placement as well. You don't roll dice and those are your workers. Rather, at the start of the game, 
dice are rolled, and that determines the value of everyone's workers. But in order to get your engine to work really well, normally you have to sock away a really high-value worker, and sometimes you're pulled in a million different directions. And very much like a lot of the other quality Euro games we like over the past few years, especially those designed by Italians, money is super tight, and so you spend a lot of time just trying to get enough cash to get new stuff anyway. I really enjoyed Lorenzo and Magnifico. Like I say, everything about it was reasonably derivative. And a lot of the elements reminded me of Euro games that I really didn't enjoy. Games like Coimbra, games like a lot of Italo Lacerda designs, games like a lot of forgettable Euro worker placements that I was kind of disgusted with simply by virtue of their homogeneity and their blandness. But Lorenzo and Magnifico comes together in a way that is more engaging than the sum of its parts. And to be entirely honest, I'm not certain why yet. I'm interested in getting more plays under. I would really like to hear your thoughts on it as well, because I don't know if I'm just confused or if there's something novel that I'm missing, because it was very enjoyable, despite, as I say, just being a worker placement tableau building thing. Part of it is just, I think, the quality of the design work that goes into things like this. You know, there's a difference between this group of designers that are generally really solid coming together and making something derivative, as opposed to, say, some other, like, Stonemeyer offering or what have you. So Walker is girding himself for the negative feedback that this comment will elicit, but whatever. I said it. It's my hot take. Sweet. Well, you're going to comment on that, Walker? Not at gonna, all. No, yeah. I love it. It's hilarious. <laughs> anyway, so that was Lorenzo Il Magnifico. I'm looking forward to trying it again. We got sent a review copy of a party game called Mardi Gras Madness. And this is a card game where you're trying to collect sets of cards. And I think if you're if you're trying to teach your children counting, I think this would be an all right game. Although I would question the theme of Mardi Gras in that sort of context because... Because it's a very, very random game with just dice rolling and and round upon round of trying to draft these cards and, and trying to win dice rolls and then doing this huge math adding up at the end to see who has the most points. Very random and the art is sort of painful to look at, but what do you think, Mark? So there's a bit of double guessing involved. At the start of the game, there are these six sets of cards, and you decide to go to two of the sets. And if you go there alone, you get everything. If you go there with somebody else, you dice off. That part's okay. That part's fine. I, I, I'm I I'm perfectly okay with something of that nature when it's quick, and Mardi Gras Madness is indeed very quick. I have two serious problems with Mardi Gras Madness, because if you're going to make a quick light game like that, you need to have two things come together. One of them is you can't have scoring that is that complicated. Honestly, it's not even that I think there's a whole lot of math involved, although there's a lot of addition. I had a little bit of difficulty figuring out how to score everything based on the included player aid and consulting the rulebook. It was like, wait, how many of them are this set? Okay, this set happens here and it counts twice. All right, fine, this happens. Which is not super hot for a game of this uh, of this difficulty. You know, adding up your final score shouldn't be roughly on a par as the difficulty of adding up your final score in a game like A Feast for Odin. That's just That just seems disproportionate to me. The second problem is some of the rules were just flatly unclear. We, to this day, don't know how to resolve ties in the dice-off. Yeah, which is a major part of the game. You know, you're, if, you, if multiple people... Uh, secretly pick the same location, then all of those people that are there get to roll a die equal to the number of people they sent there, plus or minus all of these take that cards that that are fantastic. And then, like, like Mark said, if you roll the same number, which is out of D6, going to happen more often than you'd think, there was, there was no rule stipulation to tell you what would happen. Yeah, so we There's just a light to... thing that said, you know, if you are the winner, take the card. So you could draw from that that 
if there's a tie, everybody loses, and then nobody gets cards? Well, look, there. as I said when we were playing, there's any number of things we could decide to have happen. It's not that it is totally confusing as to what would happen. We just have to make the decision, i.e. we need to invent the rule that should have been in the rulebook. Correct. So it's not that it's impossible to move forward, it's just that it's impossible to move forward with the documentation provided. So we eventually made a decision, you know, you can decide that everyone loses, or you can decide you roll again, or you can decide that nothing happens, you know, uh, there's a whole bunch of different ways you can slice it, and then you get to fall back on people's intuitions about what something clearly implies, which often ends up in arguments. And I, I gotta say, love of Mardi Gras comes across in a lot of what's going on. I learned a fair bit about Mardi Gras, but not the interesting bits. Because if you read, the back of the rulebook has a sort of glossary of the various Take That card, but... Number one, they don't explain any of the rules with one tiny exception. There's one rule buried in the description of uh, over a dozen different types of cards, which is weird. But it's mostly about the mechanics of how to secure the best throws from Mardi Gras floats. Yes, it's, it's sort of like trying to justify the theme. Right. Which I thought was odd, right? Because it was funny. It was like, I'm, I'm looking through the take that cards because it said the only complicated part about this game could be this card. So, and then I look, oh, look in the book. It's like, oh, good. They have like little descriptions of what each one does. And lo and behold, no, it's just jump up. People used to jump up really high when catching necklaces in Mardi Gras to get necklaces. So nothing really, <laughs> nothing really about how the card works. Just little, you know, snippet bites about how, how about what happens in Mardi Gras. Other oh. than that. Well, the thing is, the amount of granular detail about what goes on to scouting out floats and getting the best throws and how you need a child with a sign with a hole in it, and then you need to know the name of the person, blah, blah, blah. That part was super detailed, but there's no detail anywhere else about Mardi Gras itself. For example, just just as an example, there is this rule about how to deal with leftover cards. If the deck runs out prematurely in a, in, a, in a strange combination, they tell you how to deal with it, and they call that rule the Lanyap, which uh, apparently that's how it's pronounced, which is a big cultural thing in New Orleans and other parts of the South. They could have talked about that. I would have loved there to be some sort of discussion about these broader cultural things. I looked it up. There's this great thing about Mark Twain talking about the Lanyap and all the, the cultural implications. And that stuff is really cool and super interesting. And I, so I, I'm thankful that the game introduced this idea to me merely by gesturing towards it and not expounding on it. I don't know if that means that it's got really good theming or not. I'm kind of torn. But I think that there was a lot of missed opportunity because... All the text in there, there's so much text in the rulebook, and it's all about the mechanics of maximizing the quality of swag you get when you're at a Mardi Gras parade, which is an odd cultural artifact, I have to say. So maybe if you're if you're planning a trip to New Orleans to participate in Mardi Gras, maybe this would be a game you'd want to pick up, because when you're that inebriated, it's probably a perfect game for that state of mind. And that was Mardi Gras Madness. I got to play... Horizon Wars Zero Dark. This is kind of the spiritual sequel to Roby Jenkins' sci-fi tabletop miniatures war game that we've talked about a couple of times on the podcast, namely Horizon Wars, that was put up by Osprey Press. I really like the resolution mechanism for Horizon Wars, but I didn't quite figure out a way to get the scenarios to work for my tastes. And so when I heard that Roby Jenkins was going to be doing a follow-up, a 28mm sci-fi skirmishy type thing that was designed to be played solo co-op or versus and used the same resolution mechanism and had a sort of AI antagonist, I was super, super intrigued. And the final version of the beta came out on his Patreon a few days ago. 
And so I have to just say as, as, a, as a parenthetical, if this sounds interesting to you, you can get it right now by becoming a, a patron of Precinct Omega. That's what Roby Jenkins Publishing Imprint is called. So you can get it for a couple bucks right now and get access to the, to, to the beta files, which is honestly the deal of the month as far as I'm concerned. And I haven't played the newest version yet. I played earlier versions, and they were super cool and definitely leveraged the unique resolution mechanism at the heart of Horizon Wars that has then been elaborated on in Zero Dark. All that I've done so far with the latest version is I didn't have time to play the full game, so what I did was I assembled my crew. And some of the design philosophy involved in creating Zero Dark, which is very, very laudable, is Ruby Jenkins wants you to be able to use whatever figures you think are cool. And it's one of those relatively scale agnostic, although it's probably best with 28 mil. And it's definitely system agnostic, so you can use whatever minis you've got lying around. And I just opened up my case of Infinity Miniatures, let's be frank, that that's what I had. And I said, okay, well, this one I think looks badass, and this one I really like, and this one, okay, what does this person look like they can do? And then I start giving them stats, because one of the great things about both Horizon Wars and Zero Dark is there are no fixed unit types. Everything is, here's a pool of stats you can use to buy stats, go buy stats. Okay, I want this person to be really good at firepower, I want this guy to be really fast, I want this woman to be stealthy, etc., etc. And it's really cool just to kit out your people. So I've got my little strike force. And I'm very, very much looking forward to seeing both the final published version, which might be imminent. And by published, I mean published on the interwebs, because there's not going to be a bound version quite yet. But he's been distributing, Roby Jenkins has been distributing some of the stuff through his own web web front and through DriveThruRPG and other online places like that. And I am looking forward to putting my uh, crack crew through their paces and seeing if they get horribly, horribly murdered by the AI antagonists in Zero Dark. I am super, super enthusiastic about this game. I cannot wait to see what the final version comes out to be. And I'm already coming up with little backstories and little vignettes about who these people are and what they've done, which is exactly the kind of thing I think you want in a solo or co-op miniature system. Just enough narrative so you can sink your teeth into it, but still have enough of a solid resolution mechanism. I would contrast this with Rangers of Shadowdeep, which I've had a great deal of fun with, even though our campaign has kind of stalled, because it gives you just enough narrative to sink your teeth into. But Rangers of Shadowdeep is much more mechanically simple, which is fine. But I really, really enjoy the dice system of Horizon Wars and Zero Dark, and I cannot wait to see where it goes. And those are the games we played this week. Now, on to the news and why it doesn't matter. Mark, there's this great game on Kickstarter called Steam Watchers. It's oh, my... thank goodness. I was afraid you were going to talk about Marvel United. I know. Well, we'll, <sighs> we'll take a break from Marvel United this week. It's finished. Oh, can we? Are you able? Can. I am able. Oh, jeez. They stopped sending the checks. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Steam Watchers by Mythic Games, designed by Mark Lagroy. Going to go with that. Anyway, this pulled my mind because I am drawn to buckets of miniatures games. I can't help myself. If it's like Risk, then I'm pretty well in. But this has hidden orders like you would do in Game of Thrones. It also has asymmetric powers. Not only does each faction have a power, but you have elite units. Like in Forbidden Stars, where all the elite units have special powers. They have this system with quarantine markers because because it's post-apocalyptic, Mark. And as soon as I see that, I start throwing money at the screen and no game popped out. But, but you know, whatever. So there's this poisonous gas. And if you don't do something about it, your troops slowly get poisoned to death. And, you know, certain things happen as they as the poison builds up. So Sounds that's, cheery. That's interesting. And unfortunately, the combat's very, very much like scythe combat. So sad face, no dice. But 
other than that, I think with there's a lot to this game. It's not, you know, your basic dice chucker. I think there's a lot of more meat that I didn't talk about here. A lot more about it. So if it sounds interesting to you, take a look at it. It's called Steam Watchers. How have you not yet tried Tsukiyumi Full Moon Down? You should really give that a shot. It's interesting. Oh, yes. That was the one that had all you could either get the the cardboard stand-ups or... Well, the standee version the is... Standy version the standee version is already available, which is you, its prime virtue. Which, which you like we like I thought, I haven't seen it yet, but makes more sense because the stats and the informations yes. are on the standees, or you'd get the miniature version, which has no information, and you'll be looking up stuff until your eyes bleed. It's true. So Ginkopolis, which is a very, very good Euro game... Kind of in the same vein of, as Lorenzo El Magnifico. It's got a lot of other stuff that's that's pretty super generic. You know, it's tableau building and tiling and drafting, you know, all mushed together in a, in a Euro-y kind of thing. But it actually works. And it's definitely been a perennial favorite of mine ever since it was published. Pearl Games has been taunted for years by fans wanting a reprint because it's been going on the secondary market for, for at least triple digits for quite some time now. And finally, they have relented. They have announced that there is going to be a reprint of Ginkopolis this year. Probably not by Kickstarter. That's not really how they do things. Although if they decide to bust into Kickstarter, I'm, I'm sure that will go fine. But Ginkopolis will soon be back in print. So rejoice all those who've been seeking a copy of their very own. Yeah, if you ever find anyone that does have a copy, even or if you don't, try it. Fantastic game. Two very quick little silly uh, Kickstarter things. Queen Games has Merlin the Big Box on Kickstarter right now. I have not tried Merlin the Big Box, I have heard good things about it, but the funny little thing is, is that, believe it or not, there is nothing else on this Kickstarter page. Oh, wow. It is just Merlin Big Box. They don't have, like, 16 pages of all their other Big Box games and all their other product. It's just this project. I thought that was odd. And the other one is this, uh, yet another huge dungeon crawler called either Erune or Unrune by Arcadia Studios. And I want to give this a try. How's it spelled? It is called... E-R-U-N-E. Okay. And I want to I want to check this out because you get to roll special dices. Now, when you write a script for someone <laughs> to read, maybe have someone proofread it or maybe listen to it after they record it. And when they say something like special dices, you want, want to go over and change that. Anyway, it, too little look, silly. Look, if you... If English isn't their first language, I think we can we can cut them a little slack. I want special dices. <laughs> Fine, you can have your we can we can use British English, and you can say you have your one dice, and then you have another one dice, and very much like fishes, collectively you then have two dices. How's that? Sweet. All right. <laughs> I don't know if we're really in a position to criticize anyone no, for mangling the English language, Walker. It's just me. Like I listen. Less, sometimes if I want to get see if it's something interesting, I do listen to. Listen, watch the little vid intro videos, right? Usually they're... Well, that's your problem. Usually they're terrible. I, I would like them... Here's a little note, maybe if you... Maybe it's just me that would want this, but little game mechanisms that make your game stand out. Like, put those in the intros, not just, like, these stories that just but, but try then, to show the theme. Then, one, they would have to have game mechanisms, and two, they would have to stand out. That That is also true. You've just ruled out 99% of Kickstarter. How dare you? Uh, this is true. You're so mean, Walker. I know, it's awful. You're such a bully. Sad news. The coronavirus is definitely putting a crimp on a lot of people's travel and conference plans. And although there's been no announcement yet as to any impact on Gen Con, which will be happening in Indianapolis in August, and we have every reason to assume that Breakout will be happening as anticipated in Toronto, the CMON Expo has been cancelled. 
And so this is a relatively significant event that they've been putting on for some time now, and they've said that by virtue of concerns uh, over health and travel, they are just canceling it entirely. And I've heard of a lot of events in other hobbyist enterprises, other conventions that have just been completely canceled. There were comic cons that have been canceled, Walker, or deferred, sorry. They've been deferred for now, but deferred basically means we're not doing it when we said we would, maybe we'll do it later, which is effectively canceled. So look for future news about any future gaming conventions, and we'll we'll definitely be paying attention yeah. to the bigger ones, because I'm, this is no joke. I'm anticipating a quiet summer, unfortunately. Yes. The last bit of news is I saw some information on this New York Zoo by Uwe Rosenberg. Tons of little animeeples and designing your zoo and tiles and Uwe Rosenberg, and we love Uwe. So Someone told me it's all happening at the zoo. Give me more. I do believe it. I do believe it's true. And that is all of the news that you need to know and why it doesn't matter. So forget about it. Now onto our feature game. The monkeys stand for honesty. Giraffes are insincere. Oh. The elephants are kindly, but they're dumb. Oh, poor elephants. That's hurtful. They'll never forget that. Orangutans are skeptical of the changes in their cages. The zookeeper is very fond of rum. <laughs> Maybe they should scan his resume. <laughs> Maybe a little background check on the You know what the sad thing is? This is not the silliest we've been in the past few weeks. <laughs> That's the sad part. The feature game. Speaking of clinics that we should go to and have our blood checked. Our feature game of the week is Clinic Deluxe Edition from AV Studios and designed by Albion Venard. Come on, Mark, give it give it to give it to us right. Alban Villard. So this is, as you say, put up by AV Studios and Mercury Games. They put up a Kickstarter for a new edition of Clinic Deluxe Edition. The non-deluxe version of Clinic was originally published in 2014 by AV Studios. This was followed up by Small City the year after that and Tramways the year after that. And this is the so-called Small City Trilogy because they're all supposed to take place in the eponymous Small City. I find it strange that it begins with Clinic before Small City gets published, but whatever. We previously played Small City which has not yet been reprinted since its original 2015 version. And this is the full version of Small City as opposed to the card game version of Small City. Suffice to say, we were not a huge fan of Small City, but uh, anyway, Walker was nonetheless very enthusiastic about Clinic. And so we played Clinic Deluxe Edition. Walker, why don't you give us an unhelpful summary of what one does in Clinic Deluxe Edition? In Clinic, you are building a hospital and running it. You're setting up treatment rooms. Wait, not a clinic? I'm confused. I, no, I think this is a like a a global or world interpretation problem. I oh, mean, sure. And you only think in some places they're called clinics. And I would th I would say in, in North America, this would be a hospital that you're opening up. Okay. Sorry to interrupt. That's all right. So you're building a hospital, you're running it, you're setting up the treatment rooms, you're hiring doctors and nurses, you're admitting patients, you're moving everyone around, the, you're moving everyone around your hospital to ensure they get to the right doctor to see the right patients then you're checking costs, doing your upkeep, making sure everyone gets paid. And most importantly, you're making sure you park the cars. Oh, yeah. So what you have to do is you got to keep track of the other players, knowing what they're doing and being able to take the doctors and the patients you need by manipulating the turn order and anticipate what your what actions your opponents are about to take. Now, the, the interesting thing I thought about this, Mark, is that it's nice to know that medical facilities across the globe 
have a parking problem. I thought maybe it was just, you know, a North America thing or a Canada thing, but apparently this must be a worldwide thing where you just either pay too much, can't park, can't find parking, or where parking is just a problem when you go to the hospital. Okay, well, here here's the thing. My understanding is I've read a couple of things to indicate to me that Clinic in particular, and maybe all the small city games in general, are supposed to kind of sort of almost but not quite be New York City. Gotcha. In which case, I wonder, and I'm sincerely curious about this, and if anybody has the answer to this, if he said so in an interview, I apologize for not knowing, is this, is the emphasis on parking in Clinic supposed to be some sort of criticism or satire of American and Canadian commuter culture? If so, well done. <laughs> if not, well then, I guess it's just a weird regionalism. On that on that note, it's very scary to know that doctors get dumber the longer they hang around the hospital. Well, okay, more on that later. Because <laughs> <laughs> here, here, that's going to be under the general category for me of, is the theme confused or just awful? Because <laughs> I think there are a number of things about clinic that don't make a whole heck of a lot of sense when you start scrutinizing them. But, but out of context, I don't know that that's going to make a whole lot of sense. So one of the things that I, I want to emphasize right off the bat is that Clinic does two things that I wish more Euro games did, particularly games of this weight, because Clinic is definitely sort of medium, medium heavy uh, on the, the, the spectrum of heaviness. You know, roughly in the same weight wheelhouse as something like A Feast for Odin, maybe edging definitely lighter than something like Vital Lacerda, but definitely heavier than your average worker placement time kind of thing. Despite that, it is relatively focused. It is not the kind of thing where you're going to get points from a billion, bazillion different sources. It is mostly focused on treating patients. Yes, you can get points from elsewhere. There are a couple of marginal ways to get points here here and there. And there's certainly lots of ways to lose points, but primarily you're going to make points from actually treating patients. And that kind of focus I generally approve of in your games. A second thing that it does, and I commented about this in the context of pipeline, is I appreciate it when money management is important. When it's not just the case that you have effectively as much money as you want to spend, just you probably don't want to spend very much of it. Here, money is tight. And every round, when you treat your patients, that's going to give you a certain amount of gross income. From that gross income, you deduct a whole bunch of expenses, more on that later. And then from that net income, you decide how much of it you want to convert right away into points. And that is where you're going to get the bulk of your points. And how much of it you need to cover, uh, cover your purchasing costs for the next round. That decision and that trade-off, I really, really like, and I appreciate it when Euros make money management a thing rather than just, as I say, an effectively unlimited pool of money. You just want to save as much of it as you can. Yeah, I just want to make sure that you have two pools of money. Like, once you get your income and you cover your expenses, that's separate from, you know, the money that you have for your, you know, your, your own pool of money. And you have to decide right then and there how many victory points you want to spend, and then whatever money you have left over, then you can move that to your spendable pool. And I think that is a, a really interesting decision space there. And if you mismanage your money allocation, if you don't leave yourself enough for the coming round, you're really going to be hamstrung, but in a good way, not in a way of being knocked out of the game, but just in a way of not having a much latitude. Or maybe you just don't have enough. Maybe you just your, your expenses either exceed or equal your income. I, I'm, I'm not sure what I, I know that never happened in any of our games. I know I, I, I played perfectly, but you know, it could happen. Yes. Every time you buy something in clinic, you have to worry about its long-term costs. Every employee that you hire, this isn't food chain magnet. You can't fire people. Everybody you hire is going to be a permanent millstone around your neck. So they had better be put to work. 
Okay, and now I just started to sound like Ebenezer Scrooge and talking about prisons and poorhouses, but you get the idea. Similarly, every building you build needs to be paid upkeep. And so it's not just a question of, well, I've got a buck lying around, I might as well go build this module, especially since some modules are free. So nothing is ever free in clinic. Most of the time, you're going to be paying for that later, and every dollar you have to spend in upkeep, that isn't just money out of your pocket, although it is also that. It is also potentially victory point income out of your pocket, which makes even simple buying decisions relatively complicated or at least more interesting than they would have been otherwise. Well, a little bit more on this tile lane because it's very interesting. You're buying all these modules and you're actually building a hospital. You have to have, and it has different departments. So they have different departments you have to build and you have to build the treatment rooms and there's special placement rules and there's supply centers. And I, I really enjoy that type of game where you're, you're, it's like a puzzle and there's, there's, uh, you know, beneficial ways to build it. It's like, okay, if I build it in this particular way, then this treatment center can be hit adjacently, you know, because you can have floors, right? So it's adjacency up and down as well. So you can create these interesting puzzles and hospitals. And I really like that type of, of building game. I, I would have, I definitely like the first couple of times I had to do it. And I definitely like the first early turns where you're initially just building your hospital. The same pattern that I fell into, and maybe this is just a me problem, but I think that also the game contributes to this. After you've built a basic infrastructure to accommodate a certain amount of throughput of patients, you don't have any pressure to build any more. You might be able to build some to get some marginal victory points, again, for endgame scoring purposes. I frequently, in the later games that we built, built unnecessary wings that never saw any patients and certainly could never treat anybody just because I would get in-game victory points for them. And I didn't ever get the kind of building pressures that I would feel in other tile-laying building games, even like a game like Small City by Albanbiag, where I really need this piece, I need to keep growing, but I can't. I was reminded recently when playing a game of Antiquity, the Splatter game, where your building constraints are constant, your available building spots don't expand fast enough. And I would have liked it if in clinic you had a little bit more of that pressure. You needed to make sure that you were constantly expanding and growing, as opposed to very, very plausibly in clinic, you'd be like, oh, I built it the first couple of turns, then I'm done. I don't need to build anything else. I can treat enough people as it is. We're cool. Agreed. And the and the art style they went with, the way that everything was sort of like on an, on an angle and the way things lined up, some of the players were having issues lining them up from the floors. Like That would like, be me. For a second. No, I think there was a couple people that couldn't quite, you know, grasp or grok, you know, how, you know, what tiles were adjacent on the different floors. So Yeah, everything it, is basically a diamond. Everything's a rhombus. And that's meant to give you the illusion of 3D. But mostly what that did was made it more difficult for me to track columns. And you can tell what is directly on top of each other on the different floors based on it being in the same column. And I just could not... (laughs) Every time I would have to build up to the second floor, I'd have to stare at the thing like a monkey doing a math problem to try to figure out how it lined up. I'd also like to point out again, this is another game redesigned by Ian O'Toole, who is more and more ubiquitous in the board game market. And once again, I have to say, I love the cover. I think the cover is beautiful. And I find the iconography borderline incomprehensible. Yeah, I have this. I have that under my under the negative notes here. That that the symbology is there. There's no doubt that they have the symbology there, but it's just not super helpful. And not only that, that there's these bonus tiles that you lay out at the beginning of the game, and everyone gets to pick one. You get a little Benny at the beginning, and there was one of them that was not only 
did we not know what it did, but it was not even covered in the rule book. I actually had to go online to find out what it did. Oh, wow. You know, you could sort of, just like we talked about with Mardi Gras, you could sort of say, well, it probably does this, that sounds right, but there was it used symbology that's not in the rule book anywhere. So it was kind of odd. There's roughly three levels of symbology, as far as I'm concerned. There's iconography, where you look at it and you know immediately what it does. First time you play. It, it's sometimes unreasonable to expect a middleweight or heavier game to accomplish this effort. Then there is iconography where your first time you're playing it makes no sense, but then you can reconstruct what it means after playing it a couple times. And then there is the iconography where you look at it and you say, I know exactly what this is supposed to be trying to tell me. I know what the thing means. And now I'm trying to see if I can reconstruct how this iconography corresponds to the process that I already understand. And sometimes this happens in very simple games. Like, for example, Stevenson's Rocket. When explaining Stevenson's Rocket the other night, I would point to the player aid and say, okay, here are these pictures. I think this picture means the following. I've been playing Stevenson's Rocket for 15 years. And <laughs> I had to... I, I it, it hurt my head to try yeah, to connect. Ignore everything else. Just look at the numbers. That's how many victory points you'll get when you do that action. Right. Similarly, with many of Ian O'Toole's games, this definitely was true of Clinic uh, Deluxe Edition. He did not. He was not involved in doing the iconography in Clinic. I don't know if it was better or worse there. I would have difficulty understanding what the iconography meant, even though I knew what the tile did. And that's not awesome. All right. So, like you already talked about, I le- I really enjoyed the interesting path to victory. Like not you, like you said, not only do you get to treat patients, but there was sort of end game scoring that you could sort of strive to go for, like uh, building your hospital higher because tr- working treatment rooms, the higher they were, the more points they were worth, or uh, making doctors better because they pay out the more skilled they were at the end of the game. Just stuff like that. I thought it was very interesting that there was different ways to get points at the end of the game. Yeah, I really, I always regretted that I didn't do more of that. I tended just to focus on the short-term needs of income from patients and turning those into victory points. But the end game scoring does allow you to play around a little bit more with the tiling. As I say, I wish that there had been a slightly more, I guess the term I'd be looking for is organic pressure to expand out your hospital. Because in many, in many Euro games, you know, things ramp up and suddenly you have more and more patients. And so you need to expand that way. Or suddenly you have different diseases that you need to, to worry about. In clinic, I never really felt the organic pressure to expand outward. It was always these end game bonuses that might incline me to expand outward. And that felt a little more blunt. Since we talk, we've talked about a lot about treating the patients, I just want to go into bit about a little bit more because I thought some of the game mechanisms were very interesting there because uh, there was four different colors of doctors and, and you pretty well had to match up the color of patients to the color of doctors because it's sort of like, you know, maybe the specialization of that doctor or how sick the patient was. And then you could bypass that or, you know, bump up or bump down your doctors depending on how many nurses. And I really like the fact that the nurses were a crucial part to the hospital like they are in real life. So should we talk about the, the broader theming of this element of the, the color gradation? Sure. So one of the things that I found a little bit confusing, and this is not confusing from a gameplay perspective, this is just confusing, confusing from a thematic perspective, is this notion that doctors can treat anything regardless. Like you said the word specialization, but that isn't really accurate because everybody in the game this is also a bit thematically word. Everyone in the game starts off with a psych ward. That's the beginning of every clinic. In every game of clinic, you start with a psych ward. That's what you begin with. Okay, fine, whatever. I can swallow that. But this doctor that you're hiring to go work in your psych ward, if you need that person to then be an osteopath next turn, well, that's no problem. You can do that. (laughs) They'll go do that. Okay, fine, whatever. I'll accept that. The thing that I find really strange, though, is 
the way that the game works in terms of your incentive structure vis-a-vis the patients. So the patients come in four flavors of severity, white, yellow, orange, red. They're expected to be treated by a doctor of the same level of competence, white, yellow, orange, red. First thing is I never really figured out, and this is a little bit more personal, I never really figured out what the color of doctor meant to represent because there are a number of things that imply that it represents the level of training of the physician. They stay at the university longer, they go up a color. They go to the lab and do research. They go up a couple of colors. Okay, fine. That, that makes sense to me. But then why do doctors not degrade uh, color when they're at a cafeteria? And why do they improve color when they go to the dorm? Oh, okay. Well, maybe it represents their energy level. Well, then why are they, what is the university just being some, some big nap center? They just go sleep there forever? I don't know. So that part was a little bit weird, a little bit fast and loose. And the implication would be that any scrub, literally, uh, you know, so any any intern, given a solid enough nap time, could then go cure anybody of anything, so long as they were actually working. The other thing that I, I strongly disliked, and this part was a gameplay element where the gameplay element was strongly at odds with the theme. It is strongly in your interest to treat patients with more severe diseases. Fine. I'll accept that. But sometimes the best way to do that is to intake a patient who's not particularly sick, stick them in the waiting room, and have them wait there and age like fine wine. They came in with a stubbed toe, but by the end of it, they're in traction because they've been sitting there for months. And then you swoop in and say, ah, we'll see you now. And then you treat them for the fat paycheck. That part strongly rubbed me the wrong way. What do you mean? Welcome to our medical, in the USA, their medical, <laughs> how it works. We, we, let, let, let's not get involved in that. No, I know <laughs> Am I, 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 am I like crazy in thinking all this? Just no, no, no think- but I, I think that made for some interesting gameplay as well. And it sort of it sort of could have been a strategy because we're going to talk about bringing patients into the hospital later and the problem we had with that. And yes, I think absolutely. That was, that was sort of a way to bypass that problem is to take them early or whenever you could and just sort of, you know, mill them over and use them. From a gameplay perspective, it was okay if you have the space capacity in your waiting room, which is fixed at four. It's not like you can build more waiting rooms and get more. That that seems like an obvious oversight for me, but whatever. If you have room in your parking lot, that's the primary strain. The primary strain from preventing you from taking in a whole bunch of patients and just letting them age like cheese somewhere in your dank cave is parking considerations. <laughs> as long as you have room for them to park. So okay. ubiquitous, just as a note, you, you kind of uh, left this beautiful detail out. So ubiquitous are the parking pressures. You can build a helipad, and that patient's come in through helicopter, but it's explained specifically that someone else brings their car to the clinic, so you still have to have a parking space for them. That's what I was going to talk about next, because I, I thought the admitting patients was was kind of interesting, because we're in, one of my bad points later is that there's no uh, player interaction, and this is one part where the player interaction was there. You're going to get a certain number of uh, points to uh, admit patients, and that's depending on how many entrances to your clinic you have, plus one, and that will allow you to bring these patients off what the notepad, there's you know X number of patients per per type of sickness, like we said, psychology and heart and osteopro, you know, you know, there's depending on how many players, there's all these different, you know, areas to your hospital and then you're going to move them along and then bring them into your hospital. I just thought that was kind of interesting. The fact that you could move, you could take the patients that you needed and sort of, if you had enough points, move uh, patients that you know that your opponents needed away from the start of the line. We, it didn't really, you know, happen that much in our games, but the fact that it was there and could be utilized, I thought was interesting. I have two gripes about the patient system. 
Number one, thematically, it doesn't make sense to me at all. And again, this is this is me. This is me griping. This is not a substantive criticism. It just struck me as so odd that I still can't get it out of my head. If you have more entrances to your hospital, you can use some of your entrance capacity to convince the problem of the person with a heart murmur that really what they had was a neurological disease. Okay, fine, whatever. Uh, and then the other problem that I have with the intake system is after everyone takes one action, you then pull more patients from the bag. And every, every, every track, every type of health ailment gets one new patient. First of all, this is reasonably mechanically fiddly in terms of everyone does an action. Okay, pull more guys, pull more guys, pull more guys. Secondly, the problem that I have is, as you say, this is the primary locus of player interaction because given all these concerns that we've already talked about, the pressure for parking, the pressure for personnel, the pressure to upkeep all these individuals in all the buildings, high quality patients, namely the sickest ones, are vastly more important than low quality patients. We don't see how a volume strategy is remotely viable compared to somebody who just treats a couple of really bad sickos. There's this uh, term in healthcare called GOMER. Are you familiar with it? No. It's an acronym that, where the letters stand for get out of my emergency room. And in the healthcare context, it means something specifically. But in the context of clinic, GOMERs are people who are mostly healthy. You don't want them anywhere near your hospital unless you stick them in the waiting room and let them ha- have, have the vapors develop in them. So the competition for the really sick patients is fierce. And you're either going to be in first, uh, you're either going to be early in the turnover for the entire round or you're not. And the way actions are selected is kind of a blind guessing thing where everyone decides what kind of action they're going to do. And if you happen to decide to intake patients and you're later on in the turnover the same round that somebody, uh, the, the, the same turn that somebody else intakes patients in their first, well, guess what? All that's going to be left are whites and yellows. And yes, it's great that you can sock them aside and get uh, save them for later, but that's not going to help you be competitive against other people who are r- routinely curing orange and red patients. Yeah, not only could they get the better patients, but... The fact that everyone starts off with the same psych ward, you might not even have any patients at all, and you, you might not have enough movement points to move them up to make them psych patients so you could get them. Exactly. And there's a fixed influx of new patients, just one per ailment per action. And if you compare this to other Euro games of roughly comparable weight, I'm thinking of things like Barrage. Barrage has a very tight water supply, and you need to get there before other people do. But you can see where the water's coming. The water cycles around the different areas, so it's not just someone gets it and then it's gone. You have to build up the infrastructure to take care of it, as opposed to clinic where you grab the patients first, and if you need infrastructure later, you can do that. It just seems a little bit backward. If you compare it again to something like Food Chain Magnate, where it's all about catering to these demands that enter the system, well, the demands are generated by the players. So here in clinic, you have this random influx of scarce goods that you can't really plan for other than taking whites and yellows and just sitting them in the the, the waiting room. So that part felt a little disappointing to me, especially since, as you say, it is more or less the only area of substantive player interaction. I do want to talk, we just talked about actions. I want to just touch on that very briefly. By all means. Because I think it just uh, helps the game move along at a nice pace. Uh, you all secretly, you know, take one of these three actions, then you all reveal. And if you're not taking the same actions as anybody else, then you just do what you do. And if they, if you are taking the same action as somebody else, then it's player order, and it usually resolves fairly quickly. So I think that part of the game does move along quite quickly. That part hums along very nicely until you get to the end of the round. Yes, there is an upkeep part of the game that is quite painful. There are so many steps. What happens is, after everyone does their three actions in sequence, 
you move, start moving your personnel and your patients around in your hospital. That can be literally dozens of separate atomistic little time calculations. One move here, then over here, over here. Okay, that's four. That doctor's move. Okay, this person moves over here. That's another five. Okay, that person's moved. And then on top of that, you then calculate all your income and you calculate all your expenses and you do the math there. And then there's this upkeep thing of, okay, remove these meeples, change these meeples in color, blah, 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 blah. There's over a dozen steps every round. And on top of that, this angers some people far more than it does me. This is the kind of thing where most of the game happens with people managing their own boards, which is detrimental to player interaction and also is a nightmare for people who are who want to be sure that no one's cheating or no one's getting a rule wrong accidentally or what have you. If you aren't comfortable letting people just run their own game unsupervised, you should stay away from clinic at all costs. Yeah, like I said, no player interaction, heads down. Lots going on on other people's planes boards, but I've already talked about how I have a problem with Robo-Rally and Steampunk Rally, where where all of these things are going on on other people's boards that could be doing something wrong or not understanding a rule, but you have no idea, you just sort of have to go with it because you can't, you know, sit down and intricately go through everyone's turn because the game would take way too long. But I do want to go back to what you're talking about. You talked about, you know, uh, one of the steps is moving, everyone moves all their stuff around, but some of that I really do like is the fact that there's these, what they call, they say, consider them teleporters in the game. But I really think it's more interesting if you think of them as, you know, as the elevators or escalators or porters, the thing that, you know, helps the hospital move around and it helps you move your patients around. And there's a triage that reduces your time and just the time track itself. It's like, uh, you know, Red November where you've got to keep track and you, and you know, it's, it's going to be negative victory points at the end of the game. So it is part of the sort of strategy to, you know, try to keep your time down. Yes, and it does lead to, lead to some of the interesting pressures about how to build up your hospital in the first place. You have to make sure that everything is as efficient as possible spatially because people need to walk to where they're going to go. And those are some of the interesting building constraints uh, in terms of managing that efficiency. Mostly I did very, very badly and I had people running marathons to get where they needed to go. I think the total length of the game is pretty good and I even think with... Uh, because you're all picking action at the same time and the fact that everyone's sort of doing the upkeep at the same time, I don't think adding more players would add too, too much time to the game. And then I got, to, I played the solo mode once. I thought that was very interesting as well. It works very much like the normal game, so you don't have to, you know, change too much up. What a surprise. It just uh, gives you like these goals to shoot for, like try to end the game with a certain amount of money or have so many doctors at a certain skill level or 10 different goals in all. Plus, on top of that, there's like a ranking system. So even if you hit your goal, then you can see how many victory points you have. And then it gives you like, you know, are you an orderly or a master, you know, all these different, you know, interesting names. That's all my good points. On to some bad points. We've talked about the setup being awful. Replayability. So like we talked about, not very much to go for for victory points. It's mostly treating patients and then a few of these, you know, manipulating your hospital in a slightly different way. So I think when you go back to play this again, I can't see a lot of times you're going to fall back into this exact, almost exact same game. The only thing that can change up is, you know, the order in which the patients come out or the order in which the doctors come out, or maybe, you know, like we talked about manipulating your hospital in different ways. And in order to combat this, they've brought out 17, Mark, 17 different modules you can add to the game. And like we've always said, when when they add stuff like this, then it's usually to fix problems. So obviously this replay, replayability they felt was a problem. And so they had to, you know, bring out these 17 different modules that you could play with. This is one of the big problems with Small City as well. We're talking about extremely low luck 
low player interaction euros. And at that point, they start to approach solvable problems, or at the very least, you don't start to encounter pressures to change up your game. If this, and again, comparing this to some of our favorite euros, in a game like Feast for Odin, similar, we're talking about a very, very low luck, low player interaction game. But first of all, there's arguably more player interaction in a Feast for Odin than there is in Clinic. But also, there's so much to do that you can go out and do different things. Here in Clinic, oh, do you want to open up a Heart Ward or an Osteopath Ward? Well, they play the exact same way, so there's no really selling it different there. By the end of my second play of Clinic, and we played some more, but by the end of my second play of Clinic, I felt like I'd seen everything that I needed to see, absent the modules. And the modules don't mix things up too, too much, but they at the very least give you something new to play with, to change up your standard game a tiny little bit, because otherwise, honestly, you could play Clinic on autopilot. Just set up the initial position and be like, all right, I know exactly how this game is going to go, I can plot out the next six rounds, and everything will just play out the same way that it did a couple games ago. Agreed. We talked about the tr- how, how important the turn order is, and then you mentioned before, it's the busy work in this game. You're putting cars out, you're bringing cars off, you're putting them back out again, you're rotating the patients in and out of the bag, and just this, you know, the constant upkeep seems a little much. You know, on top of the setup and the teardown at the end. And the fact they have these, uh, we, we sort of hinted at, there's these special rooms, one that uh, rooms that will improve your doctors, room that, rooms that will help treat your patients. And most of them, there's only two that seem to be useful at all. And the other ones are just not worth it. You know, you're already, you have to pay them, you have to upkeep the building, you have to upkeep what they do, and they just don't seem worth it. Much like the gardens that, uh, another token that you can buy are these gardens. And if you treat patients and they can look at the window and see the garden, then you get two more dollars. So it already costs you to put the gardens out. You have to pay upkeep on the gardens, and now you have to sort of fit them into your hospital. Just not worth it. Uh, Every time I've decided to try to deviate just to inject some interest for myself in repeat playings, I felt that it was a mistake. And I really feel like my initial intuitions the first time I played of just the brutal efficiency of maintaining a small hospital that will treat very, very sick people was the way to go. And... When the expansion modules come out, again, they give you another slight little toy, but most of the time, when I spend any time experimenting with the modules, eh, should have stuck with what I know, but at least I have a little bit more fun with the variety that the expansion modules offer. In the end, I thought the game was super fun. I really did enjoy it, and I would play it any time, and depending on the group, I would even suggest it, but the front load of the rules is pretty heavy, right? So... You know, it'd be one of these all-night type things if you're playing with new people. And old Mike would definitely keep in his collection. He would even, if he didn't have it already, would, you know, seek it out to buy it. New, more Trappist Mike. And I'm <laughs> sending uh, it out the door. And I'm so glad that I decided that I'm going to start reading rules and teaching games. You know, and the first two games I get are On Mars and Clinic. That, that <laughs> was fantastic. Look, I've I've spent a lot of time griping about the game. I honestly think the clinic is is fine. If it had more player interaction, I would probably seriously enjoy it. Anything to give it the kind of variety that it needs, because the fundamental system is solid. The fundamental idea of placing out tiles, having to be very careful about the investment of buying a tile, because it's not just the purchase price, it's the fact that you're going to be owning it for the rest of the game, and dealing with your personnel problems, making sure that everything's as efficient as possible, but while still having all the modules that you want, that part is great. The problem is... If you played it once, you've played it pretty much. You've probably pretty much seen everything that the game has to offer, and it is just seems to it just seems to be a competition for higher quality patients. 
Either you grab them because you're earlier in turn order, or you sock some healthy person in the waiting room and wait for them to become sick. And so I really... Every time we played the game again, it was just going through the same motions over again. And so the upkeep just became more laborious and more torturous. And doing the dozen phases at the end of every round, just shuttling everything around, became more and more unforgivable. And so I like Clinic Deluxe Edition in a lot of ways. I just think that it's missing that last little bit to give it the variety and the replayability that I want a game to have. Agreed. So that's going to do it for this week. Thank you very much for joining us for So Very Wrong About Games. I hope you enjoyed it. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can reach Walker via his email, justrolledadice at gmail.com. You can reach me, Mark Bigney, on Twitter at the games you like. For more public discussion, you can find the So Very Wrong About Games Facebook page, or you can check out our board game guild, which is guild number 3236, and you can find us on Patreon. We read everything you send us, and we'll get back to you if we can. Thanks again very much for tuning in, and we hope to see you again soon. Speaking about the guild, Mark, I've been talking about the, the Omnibus episode. So coming up on the Guild soon will be a place that you can put your questions for the Omnibus episode. So hop on the Guild. Fantastic discussions going on there. See you next week. Peace! You've been listening to So Very Wrong About Games, produced by Michael Walker and edited by Mark Bigney. Special thanks goes to What Does It Eat for generously allowing us to use their most excellent song, FOS, as our theme. You can find them at whatdoesiteat.com. You can reach us by email at soverywrongaboutgames at gmail.com or on Twitter at sowronggames. Thanks very much. See you next time. And always, try to be right, but remember you are so very wrong. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.